Does the name John Newton ring a bell? No, put your phones down, no Googling. That's not fair, that's not fair. John Newton is from uh, England, and his dad was a seaman. And uh, actually, he decided to follow in his father's footsteps, and he joined the British Royal Navy, but actually got kicked out for his rebellious ways. And where he found himself was actually on a slave trip Ship. He actually was enslaved and began working in a lemon tree plantation on a place known as the Isle of Plantains. There he was trapped, he was poor, he was hungry, destitute, and forgotten. He actually escaped slavery and captivity and found himself on a ship and he was drunk and got thrown overboard by a violent ship. And the only way he was saved was by another sailor harpooning him and pulling him actually back onto the ship. And so that near-death experience rattled him. It actually started to change his life. And actually some work by a guy named Thomas Akempis writing about the life of Christ drew him to become a follower of Jesus, and he surrendered his life to Christ. He continued as a slave trader on a ship and actually was actually enslaving people like he used to be in the same way. Well, John Newton had a mom who prayed for him from the moment he was born, and her ultimate prayer was that John Newton would not only find the Lord, but also become a preacher and preach God's word. Well, his mother died at a very young age, but in the short window of time that she had with John Newton, she poured into him the ways of God. She trained him in the way that she, was, he, she wanted him to go, right? And it was years later, after wrestling and struggling in many ways in his life, that actually God finally got a hold of his heart. He gave up the practice of slave trading and eventually crusaded against that whole industry. He went back to his homeland of England where he actually became a pastor and he began preaching, but he's probably most known for his hymn writing. It was actually him who wrote the most famous hymn of all Christendom, Amazing Grace. It's in the first stanza of that hymn that I think we begin to see a parallel between the life of John Newton and actually a person that we've been learning from a lot as we've been studying this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. The Apostle Paul wanted the Romans to not just know, but to experience the gospel. For the gospel had changed his life, and he knew it had the power to change them. Over the past few weeks, we've worked through this powerful, this dense theological letter, this passionate appeal from the Apostle Paul for the Romans to understand and to experience the good news of the gospel. And Paul has not minced words about the place that all the Romans found themselves, both Jew and Gentile. They were guilty as charged of living a sinful life. They were deserving of wrath, Paul says, because of their deliberate decision to worship created things instead of worshiping the creator. And this led to all kinds of sinful behavior as he lists in chapters one and two. Things like wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, arrogance, inventing ways of doing evil, disobeying their parents, having no understanding, no love, no mercy. Just to name a few from the Apostle Paul, right? Paul points out that there is no one righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul is very clear that because of sin's control on our life, the wrath of God is fair and justly poured out on all who behave this way. That's the bad news. That's the harsh reality. 
But I think Paul is just as quick and I think even more passionate about sharing the good news of the gospel, that a righteousness has been revealed from God to all, and it's by faith. Paul shares that God sent his only son, Jesus, to take sin's punishment from us. That punishment was death, so that we might receive his righteousness, be reconciled to God. That's the good news, and that permeates all of Paul's letters. Paul begins to unpack how we are to live in response to this good news, beginning in chapter 6. In fact, that's where he writes these words. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin will no longer be your master. You are not under law, but under grace. In chapter 7... And we must realize that when Paul wrote this letter and the first people hearing it, they didn't have numbers outside of the verses. There weren't chapters dividing it. When Paul in chapter 7 begins to speak of the freedom we have from that Old Testament law and from sin through faith in Christ, having died to our old way of living because of what Jesus has done for us. He points out that Jesus' death brings us grace and forgiveness. And we're now alive to live differently. We're now slaves to God. And he uses an analogy in the first part of chapter 7 of marriage to illustrate his point. Why don't you follow along with me as I read from Romans chapter 7, the verse, first six verses. Paul says this, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relationships with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, sin is released, or yeah, she is released, from that law, and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, meaning likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way, a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul then follows up in verse seven with a question. He says, if the Old Testament law brought such bondage and and disobedience, is the law bad? And he answers his own question with the same gifs that we looked at last week, meaning no way, not a chance, certainly not, right? I mean, the Old Testament law had a purpose, and that purpose was to bring life. The Old Testament law's purpose was to show the holy life that God desires. It's perfect and useful to help us understand who God is and to display what a life that he designed looks like. The Old Testament law was not the problem. Sin is the problem. Paul goes on to talk about that in verses 7 through 13. Paul says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. 
Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I lived apart from the law, Paul says, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment to put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, Paul says. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul clearly identifies that the Old Testament law revealed God's character as well as his desire of what he wanted to see in humankind, how to live in relationship with him, how to live lives that glorify him. And while the Old Testament has numerous laws recorded through it, in the ones that we know as the Ten Commandments recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we can see clearly the heart of God, who is our Father, and what he wants for his children. Living according to the law is useful. It's just impossible. The purpose of the law was never to make us perfect, but was to show us what perfection looked like. And Paul recognizes, as well as points out the perfection and the purpose of the law. But he also acknowledges his inability to keep the law. He speaks of the difficulty of of even living in response to the grace by which he now stands. Many have tried to identify, like, when in Paul's life is he referring to? Is referring to when he was a time as a child, maybe right as he was going through bar mitzvah, where he was transitioning from childhood to adulthood, where he would now be fully responsible to live out the law? Or was he describing a moment after he came to faith in Christ, acknowledging that he had been saved, but yet there was still this struggle with sin in his life? Having looked at it from several different perspectives and actually read several different commentaries, I feel that Paul's describing his current situation. I don't see any reason to dismiss the fact that Paul finds himself in a saved yet struggling with sin situation. In fact, I would describe this this place as present but not yet. And I would kind of wrap that up for us today by using the words saved and being sanctified. We've come across some big theological terms as we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Romans. One of those is justification. God declares all who place their faith in Jesus forgiven, acquitted, made in a right relationship with God based on Jesus' death and resurrection. We stood guilty and dead in our sin, but God delivered us from the penalty of sin and he placed on us the righteousness of Jesus. All this happens instantaneous when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and we surrender to him as our Lord. But it leads us to another word that maybe we don't have handles for yet until today. That word is sanctification. It might be a new word for some of you. It's the lifelong process of becoming like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit as he conforms us into the image of Jesus. Justification is being saved. Sanctification 
is the continual process of becoming like Jesus. Salvation is a free gift. Sanctification will cost you everything. Paul addresses this struggle that we all face of being fully formed into the image of Jesus. He spoke of it in chapter 6 when he tells us to not let sin reign in our mortal body, to not offer ourselves to wickedness, but offer ourselves to God. But I appreciate what Paul does in chapter 7. He has an honest evaluation of himself as well as the rest of us when he writes these words. I'll caution you that I'm going to read this very slowly so that you don't get caught up in the do-de-do-de-do-do-do and kind of lose track of what Paul's saying. So follow along. Paul says this, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, Paul says, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Hashtag the struggle is real, right? I mean, not just capturing all the do's and do's and do's, but we, we know that that is a struggle because we face it ourselves. The struggle is between our sinful nature as well as against the work of the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Jesus. Paul writes about this struggle in probably every letter he writes. Take, for instance, his letter to the Galatians, where he says these words. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the, sin, the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. While we are free from the power of sin and death through what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we must die daily to ourselves and not let sin reign in our lives or obey its sinful desires. Paul often speaks of this life of faith or this path to holiness as a race to run, a battle to be fought. He speaks of the daily discipline required to not be disqualified from the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. Again, justification happens instantaneously, but sanctification will not be complete until we get to heaven. Now, this seems like mysterious. These two things that are happening at once. The Hebrew writer pointed out it the same way, Hebrews 10, 14. He says, by one sacrifice... Jesus has made perfect those who are being made holy. These two things are happening simultaneously. I'm sure we can all relate. There is no to-do list. There's no New Year's resolution. There's no amount of willpower that can actually fix this situation. Paul says what he desires to do is the law of God. He delights in it. He acknowledges that it is good. It's just. It's holy. 
But for all his desire to obey it, he's crippled by a malignant power of sin within him to obey it. Paul is describing the reality of life that we all face. We're living on two planes, one with a really strong desire to honor God and obey him, while at the same, we recognize this struggle that we have of sin that keeps pulling us down. Paul honestly confesses this reality. He's even frustrated by it, and we see that in this desperate cry that he makes when he says these words, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Wretched. Now, that's not a word that we hear often. It's certainly not a word we put on our resume or used to refer to ourselves, right? But Paul did. John Newton did, as well as Charlotte Elliott, another hymn writer. You might be familiar with her words. She penned the words, just as I am without one plea. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict and many a doubt. Just as I am, poor, wretched, and blind. It's the cry of desperation, a total recognition of our inability to obey the law fully, to be completely holy as God is holy, or to be righteous on our own. It's a statement of our inability to save ourselves. Does the name Janelle Guzman McMillan ring a bell? Janelle grew up as one of nine children of a Venezuelan immigrant family that actually lived in Tobago and uh, Trinidad. She, uh, as an adult, moved to the United States to just kind of find a new way. And she settled into New York City. She got really wrapped up in city life and decided to make that her permanent home in the year 2000. She bounced from job to job, but then finally landed a job as an office assistant with the Port Authority in New York City. And her office was on the 64th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 21 years ago today, at 8.06, Janelle Guzman McMillan clocked into her work just like she did every day since being employed. She settled in for what was just going to be a normal Tuesday with all of her other coworkers. It was at 8.46 that at her desk, she felt the whole building she was in shake. And coming from a Venezuelan country, she uh, was used to earthquakes, and she kind of chalked up to the motion to an earthquake. She did check into uh, information from her boss who said he had called the local Port Authority officials and he would get back to her with any news. He asked all the employees there to stay put in that office on the 64th floor. Some people disobeyed his orders, immediately went to the elevator and began making their way to the ground floor. Janelle and some other co-workers were there working when another shaking of the building rattled. It was actually the second plane crashing into the other tower, just 200 feet away. She quickly went into a conference room where they realized that these were no earthquakes, but actually it was the act of terrorism. Still asking the employees in that floor to stay put, Janelle and several of her co-workers disobeyed those orders and made their way down the stairs, which actually was a decision that saved her life. She remembers holding the hand of a coworker named Rosa as they made that descent floor after floor after floor from 64 to 50 to 40 to 35. And she said, when we got to floor 13, my feet were aching because I'd wore high heels that day and they were just shredding my feet. So I let go of Rosa's hand and took off my sandals. And that's when a loud boom followed by complete darkness happened. 
The next thing she knew is she was lying under a pile of rubble as the building she had been in collapsed around her. Janelle Guzman McMillan laid in that same situation for 27 hours. She's actually known as the last living survivor of 9-11. She remembers being trapped between two concrete walls. She couldn't move anything except a little bit of her left arm, and her head was pinned between two concrete beams. She said she finally, with the jerk of her neck, was able to free her head as hair was pulled from her scalp. She laid there, realizing that this would probably be where she would die. And the only thing that gave her hope, she said, was the desire to see her 12-year-old daughter. And so she began to pray. God, would you save me? God, would you rescue me? God, would you intervene? And just at the point where she was almost out of hope, she remembers hearing a voice. Hi, this is Paul. Hang on, somebody's coming to get you. Within minutes, Janelle Guzman McMillan felt a arm on her, or a hand on her arm. It was the first responding re- rescue team. And they removed Janelle from the rubble. She was hospitalized for about a month. They thought she would lose uh, her left leg to be amputated. But after four successful surgeries, they were able to spare her leg. She went on to get more certification and airline uh, oversight and continued to work with the Port Authority. A, 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 achieving more in her career. It was several years later when she decided to visit the 9-11 memorial, where there's now pools, memorial pools, where her office used to stand. As she gathered there, local news media was surrounding her as as a person who was the last known survivor. And they actually facilitated some of the rescue team to be there to meet with her that day, the first time they had met since they had rescued her. She wanted to go and see where her friend Rose's name was engraved in the granite. She also wanted to meet Paul. And so she asked the rescue team, can you guys introduce me to Paul? And they looked a little confused because there was nobody on the rescue team that day or really any time around that time whose name was Paul. In a book, she writes that Paul was her guardian angel that day who helped just continue her hope in the moment, but also led to her faith being restored that's now stronger than ever. That's an incredible rescue story. You know, the Apostle Paul, just like he has done all throughout the letter to the Romans, asks a question, and then he answers his question. Remember what his question was, right? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he answers his question by saying, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's the same thing that Paul's been speaking about since the very beginning of his letter. In chapter one, remember, he wrote these words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. In chapter three, he wrote this. Apart from the law, a righteousness is now available, made known to us by God through Christ Jesus to all who believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In chapter five, Paul said this. We've now been justified through faith. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into grace by which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Since we've been now justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That is our rescue story. Believers are perfect when they are justified through faith in Christ. And they are sanctified through the process that God begins in that moment. Paul acknowledged this reality, as well as other biblical writers, like John, who wrote in his epistle these words. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. John writes this, my dearest children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I think that's a true picture of what it looks like to be saved and being sanctified. As I mentioned last week, I don't want any of us to be fearful. We are saved through faith in Jesus, and therefore we receive the righteousness of Jesus. We stand before God acquitted, but we also have the obligation to live in response to all that God has done for us. And the struggle against sin will continue until the day we stand before God. This past week, as you're probably well aware by now, the world lost its grandma, Queen Elizabeth. I love that description of her. I certainly don't know her personally, but I just thought that was a great way to kind of sum up her influence in the whole world around us. I love a quote that's attributed to her. The story is told that she was once having a conversation with her chaplain, and she made this statement to the chaplain, I want to be living when Jesus comes back. And that kind of intrigued the chaplain a little bit, and so he inquired, why is that? And she says, because I want to lay my crown at his feet. I think that's a pretty powerful summary of how this life should end for all of us, regardless of our stature, regardless of our status, regardless of anything that we've accomplished in this world. It will end when Jesus comes back and we meet him face to face and we will lay our crown at his feet. It's also in that moment when all the wretchedness is over. That's the moment when we will be complete in Christ, sanctified, made completely holy, made whole once again. We can have victory over sin in our life. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul mentioned that in verse 6 of chapter 7. And actually, that's what we're going to look at next week in chapter 8. You need to remember that like 6, 7, and 8 all go together. And so I'm not going to go into 8 today. I hope that you'll come back next week. Paul wanted the Romans to know the truth. He wanted them to know the good news of the gospel. 
And the good news of the gospel begins with understanding who we were, that we were condemned. We were guilty as charged because of our sin. But God, I love the phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, but God. But God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. He made us righteous. Big Daddy Weave is a Christian artist who took that but God and worked it into a song. Some of the lyrics say this, I was dead in my transgressions, wandering in sin. I went searching for redemption down a road that had no end. I was walking through the fire. I was living on the run with my flesh lost in desire. I was drowning in the flood, but God, who's rich in mercy, you came to save me. Now I'm alive. But God, strong and mighty, you reached down for me so I could rise. And now I'm alive. See, the gospel speaks to who we were, but the gospel also speaks to who we are to be, saved and being sanctified. Paul acknowledges that there's a battle to live in, in response to the grace that we've received. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross was once for all, for everyone, and instantaneous when we place our faith in Jesus. But he also began the good work that he'll be faithful to complete in all of us in conforming us into his image through the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a free gift. Sanctification will cost us everything that we once thought important. But I believe in the journey of sanctification, you will experience and receive more than we can ever possibly imagine. And on this journey, God will replace those evil desires in our heart with new desires. And then finally, when we see him face to face, the wretchedness of this life, this flesh, passes away. What does this saved and being sanctified look like? How does it practically play out? I couldn't think of a better way to demonstrate that than just to use Paul's own words as he describes this to the Colossians. Look one final passage I want to share this morning. Paul says, since then, you've been raised with Christ, since you've been saved, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We sang about that already this morning. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now You must rid yourself of all these things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Then he closes by saying this, therefore, because you've been saved, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
As I was reading that passage just this moment, I thought of an old illustration I once used in youth ministry. I had um, several layers on this evening when I was preaching this sermon. And as I described those things that Paul says for us to take off, I began removing some of my clothing. I remember just having layer upon layer, and it ended up just being a pair of shorts and a T-shirt that I remained wearing in front of the youth I was speaking that night. And then as a very clear demonstration of what to put on, I began describing the things that Paul says to put on. And I put on a robe. I put on a long flowing wig. I put on a fake beard. Put on that traditional blue sash that you see Jesus wearing. And it was hopefully obvious to those listening that night that this is what it looks like to be controlled by the sinful nature. And that should no longer be the way we're described. This is what it looks like to put on those things that show we have been justified and we're being sanctified, made into the image of Jesus. And we're all a piece of work in progress to that end, right? When you read the words of Paul, in every letter that he's written, he acknowledges this struggle and he gives hope. And that hope is it's not something that you can do. You can't save yourself, nor can you sanctify yourself. That's all the work of God through the power of Jesus to save you and the Holy Spirit to sanctify you. And I pray that you'll just lean in to both of those. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for saving us. We are extremely incapable of being holy. And you knew that. You knew that before you created the world. You knew that before you created any of us. You knew that. And so you sent Jesus, knowing that he was the only one who was perfect, and he's the only one who could save us. And he did. God, I pray that if there's somebody here today who's never claimed the salvation that you offer through Christ, through faith, a righteousness that none of us can bring about on our own, Lord, I pray today would be that day for them. God, for those of us who have claimed that salvation, we've been justified, made right in your sight. God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, there'd be evidence after evidence after evidence by the way that we live, by the way that we love, by our desires, our motivations, our thoughts, our actions, everything about our life would be a visible and even invisible display of your power working in us to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that work would continue until we see you face to face. All for your glory. We pray through Christ's name. Amen.